Welcome to part one of a study of the relationship between Canadian literature and Canadian identity, featuring Candace Jane Dorsey, Alison Clark, S.G. Wong, and Jim Flatman, facilitated by Sutina Cho. I am Julie Robinson, and this podcast is produced and presented by the Writers Guild of Alberta. Do you feel, as authors here located in you know, Alberta, that there are similarities between yourselves and other writers across the country? Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, do you think there's any aspect of similarity across the nation? Is there something that holds Canadian authors and Canadian literature together? I mean, other than the fact that we, for the most part, call ourselves Canadian. Yeah. Canadian people. Yeah, like, is there something that makes... Canadian literature distinct from its counterparts, like British literature or American literature? I'd say yes and no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and from a perspective of having seen, it's quite horrifying to say this, but more than 40 years. <laughs> what a privilege. Oh, yeah. Wisdom, okay. wisdom, wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom, right, God. Um, but having seen the scene over more than 40 years because when I was studying in university um, I started university in 1970 and there were courses in Canadian literature but they were really new and the scene in a way was quite new but Alberta had a kind of a an interestingly progressive literary community partly because of some conservative politicians but in those days conservative meant something different when you when you uh, when they elected a conservative government in 1970 that was a bit of a political revolution here mm-hmm. toward the left yeah uh, it was uh, from social credit right and there was a culture minister named Tor Schmidt who became quite notorious for his his championing of Alberta um, arts mm-hmm. and culture and that included the writing scene and so so there was a, a, a period of great sort of growth and, and understanding. But we were also lucky to have Henry Kreisel teaching here at the university. And he had come to Canada actually as a, as a detainee. Because if you recall, um, in World War II, um, refugees who were Jews from Austria and Germany were interned in Canada as well as German prisoners of war in the same camps. And, and Kreisel, as, as a youth, went through that experience. But at the same time, he was, he was also a writer, and he, he decided that if he was going to be in this country, he would write in the language of the country, so he always wrote in English. And he also began to champion the literature, and he was one of a cohort of people who taught my age group. Mm-hmm. Right? So they were the ones saying, yes, there is a Canadian literature. And they included Kreisel, they included Rudy Weeb included in, in Edmonton, Doug Barber, who was also deeply interested in science fiction. And he, in fact, wrote his thesis on four really important science fiction writers in U.S. science fiction writers. But So he was quite global, but he was also part of the Canadian sort of poetry um, group that included B.P. Nichol and included all the House of Nancy Press people, Margaret Atwood, taught in Edmonton mm-hmm. and lived in Edmonton. And, I just missed her at the university. She had just moved back east and so on. So there was this sense of excitement and pride in Alberta literature and also in Canadian literature. But 
something that happens when, when that works, like when that kind of encouragement works, is that then people get to feel like, yeah, we have a literature, so what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to do like our own artistic thing and, and form into different groups and form into and, and look at different genres and, and look internationally as well as nationally. So this is kind of funny dynamic now, not funny, but interesting dynamic. It's a dynamic tension between a Canadian identity that expresses itself differently depending on whether you're in literary fiction, which I consider very much a genre, or one of what are called the genres, Genres. which are simply (laughs) just different kinds of fictions, um, or poetry. I think these communities express their identity differently, but in the community that I've been most active in, which is the speculative fiction community, um, there are actually... Uh, a group of critics who talk very specifically about how Canadian speculative fiction developed differently from uh, American and from British. And some of it had to do with something that's very similar to what Margaret Atwood uh, talked about in her survival. book of literary criticism, Survival. And it's about sort of the northern landscape, a different sense, a sense of being an outsider culturally, um, commenting on, on the imperium that was next door to us and mm-hmm. so on. So even in, in that community, there was a, a sense of a kind of difference of identity that started to develop in the mid-1980s. And it included writers from Quebec who were only read in, in translation here. But it was a bit different because the professional association includes both French and English writers and for a while operated completely bilingually. And it became kind of difficult for people with developing careers to continue to translate everything in the newsletter, that kind of thing. So we now mostly operate in English, but, but it still means that across that language divide, we discussed our fictions. And we did see a sense that there was, there was something different about the Canadian French with the French French or with the American, and very different from the English Canadian to the American or the British. So. I feel like my career for that 40-some years, 43 or so since I, 45 really, since I graduated high school, has always been about a kind of dynamic relationship between an international view of literature and a Canadian view. And there are times when that could become parochial, but I don't think it, I don't think it usually does. Because I think that individual creators are not interested in, in being in a box, whatever that box is. So there are always people bursting out with these fireworks to different sides, and people who see themselves very much as part of a different community than just strictly the Canadian community. There are issues about post-colonial writing, mm-hmm. about queer fiction, uh, and so on, that, that create groupings across boundaries and across borders, and create different connections than certainly existed 45 years ago when I was sort of starting out. Yeah. I don't think that... Now, in 2016, we can say there's no monolithic idea anymore of Canadian literature. And I think as a person who went through uh, university at U of A here and did uh, Canlit at that time, <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s, I felt as, you know, as a woman of color, I felt vastly underrepresented. I remember in, backing up, I remember in, at high school or junior high, I think, we read the classic W.O. Mitchell, right? Who has seen the wind? And I felt completely disconnected. I did not understand what the novel was about. I read the thing because as a good little student, you have to read the thing. 
But I didn't feel any emotional connection to any of the characters at all. And I didn't really understand why I should care where the wind was. <laughs> really, why should I care? Because that experience was not my experience. As an immigrant, and I immigrated as a child, uh, I was three, I, I learned English in my kindergarten classroom. They set me aside and gave me, strangely enough, Dutch books, Dick Bruna. They're Miffy, that little white rabbit, but Bruna is Dutch. <laughs> and I learned English <laughs> from a book by a Dutch man. It was very odd. Um, and so I was already set aside from my peers in kindergarten. And, um, and I had to learn English. Sort of, you know, my, my teacher had to juggle the whole class and then juggle me. I was the only non-English speaking student in her class. So I don't remember anyone from kindergarten. I didn't socialize, I didn't do anything because I was set aside that way. As think, just as a practicality. So I don't know where my desire to write comes from, but I've never really thought, well, how do I place myself in Canadian literature? Because I never considered that I was a part of Canadian literature. Mm -hmm. as, as Candace, you said, literary writing is definitely a genre. I think internationally that's what people think of when they think of Canadian yes. writers. They think we all write like Margaret Atwood. And you know there's nothing wrong with writing like Margaret Atwood. It would be lovely. But she is probably right now our biggest star and she has been for many years. And rightfully so. She has a fantastic imagination. <laughs> You know, and um, just a wonderful way with words. But um, so what I write is I write what's called genre fiction. I write speculative fiction, and I mash up a whole bunch of things. You know, um, but I've been lucky enough to work with literary writers in the literary genre and the other genres, and we all write our own stories, and we're all so fiercely proud of being Canadian. You know, uh, and and oftentimes it is in opposition to the great imperium <laughs> beside us, you know, to the south. And many of us are happy to say we're more in the British tradition, for example. So I write the primary genre, subgenre of my writing is crime writing, crime fiction. And many crime fiction authors, you know, there's a classic traditions of British crime and American crime. But we have a, a very a, a lovely little group of us called Canadian crime writers, mm -hmm. and it always seems like for marketing purposes you have to say which tradition you're in. But it, because I guess nothing happens in a vacuum, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's lovely to hear your perspective, Candice, on like evolution of what Canadian literature, literary identity is, and I think it's it's now just like visually we are, it's multicultural. Yeah, and so as, as an immigrant too, I, I note that in the mainstream, writers of color are often expected to write immigrant experience yeah. stories. Because you are the voice of everybody. That's right, and like. yeah, and yeah. you know, I'm dead, I'm sorry, I'm not interested, I'm sorry. I just said I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, no, but I'm, I'm not <laughs> interested so not in writing. I'm not interested in writing the immigrant experience at all. Um, at the same time, I'm very interested in holding up a mirror to the traditions we do have, <laughs> that we do have. And right? I think that's, there's, there's like the central tension in Canadian literature, right? Because we're looking for a broad term to cover something that is inherently so diverse, 
So like, how can we say what Camlet is if Camlet is supposed to be diverse? But it always interests me that there's a, a there's always been kind of an outsider pride to to even the canon. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. When you think about who it used to be possible to read all of Canlit. <laughs> right? But even in, in those days, it was it was quite a, a sort of diverse experience and it was about it was about people who were outsiders or felt outsiders a lot of the time. So I think it's kind of a natural growth into a, a you know a sense of diversity. That being said, I mean there's obviously also a, some conservative streams that flow through, but it does interest me that as it blossomed exponentially to the point where you could no longer like it used to be that if there was a book launch in Edmonton 150 people would come mm. and you could sell I remember with my first book of short stories in 1988 I sold 89 copies and the only person who'd outsold me at the bookstore in the previous six months was Peter Zosky right because I just invited everyone I knew and and we bought all the books that came out mm -hmm. And even if you wanted to do that anymore on a writer's salary, you can't, <laughs> right? Because writers don't make money, they make art. You know? and, so, and so a, a transformation it also means you have to specialize. You have to decide who you read. Mm. So then it becomes more of an issue of how do you be present with your, not your cultural identity, but your writerly identity. How does your, writerly, how does your writer self be present in the literary scene? And the choices of how we be present then determine to some degree the, the readers that we have. So you can now have specialist fictions of a whole bunch of kinds. You can have someone who you know, reads only woman writers who is not reading, who's not understanding kind of queer theory or, or someone who, who is sort of a specialist in post-colonial writers who has never read a speculative writer. Mm -hmm. And they might find Sandra and say, oh, I found somebody who represents blah, 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 but you right. don't really, yeah. because by now, you know, you have gone to your own personal place, and I think that may, I mean, I don't know that people cited themselves as Canadian when they sat down to write, but that pride created a sense that we could write whatever we wanted, and it would be Canadian, and I think that that's the thing that mm -hmm. has moved into the new generations, but I'm yeah. talking too much, and not <laughs> other people aren't, so I'm going to shut up. Um, I think for me, the Canadian identity thing is more based on the international view. Because Canada doesn't really have any power politically still, and we're, we're sleeping with the elephant, like Trudeau said, right, with the states, I think it gave us the position of being the outsider and looking and commenting on events in the states and globally. And so we've always had that international perspective. And I think about Margaret Atwood, I studied her in high school, the poetry and all that. For me, being literature is not really about the prairies and all that. It's more about imagination for me. And when I went to that Margaret Atwood talk at the Tim Center, and I asked her a question about why she was interested in science fiction, and she listed all these comic books that she read as a kid and all these different genres, and how that all sparked imagination from all these different walks of life besides the traditional literature. And so for me, the landscape is imagination, really. And so I'm fantasy writer is what I get into. Because I find out that fantasy, like all the masters, rolling, like is there a master in Tolkien, they couch in story, a lot of sociological 
issues and other issues in the writing. Tolkien's room was shaped by the World War and the trauma there, and you put that in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then you go ahead to Lewis, and you refer to the Second World War, and how the kids have evacuated outside of London, that couch in the, the his Chronicle series. And so you can couch all sorts of things in fantasy. And I was thinking about Octavia Butler, and she did the mm-hmm. same thing, because if she did a nonfiction, no one would read it. Mm-hmm. We slide it in there, <laughs> in fantasy sci-fi, people will get to Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's elements of that, the international and imagination. So I think for me, the Canadian, I don't really think there's a Canadian literature. It is diverse. I don't think it's any one thing. But for me, it's more about words and creating worlds and doing things differently and also commenting on what's happening globally. And I have American friends who are not so insular. But you just watch the news compared to the CBS, the ABC, and then the CTV and the CBC with Mansbridge and all that. There's something very different. Where the American news is very much all about us, where the Canadian is more international, looking over globally in its perspective and not as biased. And that reflects in the literature, it reflects in the authors because we see things more globally. And Americans still don't know much about us or any parts of the world, but we. When I go to the States, <laughs> I know a lot more about their geography than they know about us. Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn it in school, really. Again, it was cultural, the cultural imperialism. So I know almost all the states. I know about this and that. It was more for books I read that were American. Judy Bloom and all that tale, talking about New York City. Mm-hmm. So I know about Bloomingdale's mm-hmm. and all that. We didn't mm-hmm. learn that in school. So the words were very powerful in terms of a learning tool, too. But I find it's that the global aspect being the observer and commenting about different things, I think is the only thing really for me that anchors all the Canadian literature, the global perspective, Mm -hmm. and commenting about different things and the freedom to do so. Well, I find a lot of Canadian literature is based on people's experiences and uh, it brings a certain personal touch to uh, Canadian writing. I think that being a Canadian author also gives you uh, certain advantages and things that don't apply to uh, other countries. For example, Canadians pride themselves on freedom. It's even enshrined in our national anthem. Mm -hmm. And yet Canadians tie themselves into knots with bylaws, rules, regulations, and laws ad infinitum. And then, believe it or not, some Canadians don't even think the law applies to them. (laughs) And that's written in my novel here. That, you know, they can think they don't have, they can drive while they're talking on their cell phone. Or be diverted, it doesn't apply to them. And some examples in my novel of that very same thing. And here it is, right there. <laughs> You've got to read that novel, it's in there. And another thing that Canadians love are animals. They love their pets. And you can lie on that, and that's in there. And there's something else in this novel, Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> that doesn't appear in any other nation. That's really uh, special. And there's concern for Canadians for those less, less fortunate than themselves. So I've written that in here. And then, of course, Canada has evolved. It's changed. It used to be, when I was young, it used to be desirable for young men to camp out in tents. No, go off into the woods, make your own bonfires, and have a clasp knife, 
pulled at night a three and a quarter inch blade was ideal for cutting firewood and making burning sticks and kindling. Nowadays, you can't camp out in the woods. It's against the law. You have to have a permit and go somewhere out of the country. You certainly can't light a bonfire. That's okay. And having a class blade will land you in jail. So Canada is evolving, it's changing, and you have to keep up with these changes. And that is uh, all embedded in my... I've made the novel, put that into the novel, and some people seem to like it. So, as I say, it's... Uh, just about sold out of its first edition. And yet it had no publicity whatsoever. But Audrey's gave me an author's night. The author's night was packed out, books sold. But I don't know that it's going to be a, a, have a second edition. However, being a, getting back to the subject of being a, a Canadian, there's lots of Canadian opportunities to write into your literature. I, I don't have much to add except that as we were talking it, it interests me that the CBC puts out lists of books um, and I haven't read through those 100 books entirely but there must be some rationale for choosing those books and that I would be interested in that rationale or in reading all 100 and just trying to discern the that's rationale. A whole, that's a whole separate project. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's interesting to me because that represents nationally. I mean, the CBC is our, you know, yeah. and it's quite influential. And so that list, you know, it, it is a kind of canonization, right? Which is just interesting. And there's a literary critic, he's also a, a writer, Samuel Delaney, who, who wrote a really interesting essay about how canons are created. And they're not necessarily created of the most popular books or the best written books. Sometimes they're created <laughs> around the most teachable books. Right? So the markers go up because these are books that are accessible yes. for high school yes. or freshman university which is, readers. Which is why The Wars is never taught. Yeah. Because it's a terrible new novel to teach. But it's, it's my favorite Canadian novel. The War is by Finley yeah. is the single greatest literary work to come out of Canada. <laughs> but it's also, I think that's a huge thing. It's like yeah. what is easy, or not easy to teach, but like more accessible to students. And that, like you said, it often ends up in canon because it's... Yeah. So, I mean, just as, to go back to who was seeing the wind, that was early in Mitchell's career. And in many ways, it's a very slight novel. And later in his career, he wrote a book called What I Did in My Summer Holidays, which was basically the shadow side of Who Has Seen the Wind. And if you were going to teach a mature Mitchell novel that used the same themes, that looked at the prairie, but was much more nuanced and had a lot more darkness in it, you would teach What I Did in My Summer, or what I, yeah, what I Did in My Summer Holidays. But it's easier to introduce who has seen the wind to a, a broad that body is, of people. Mm -hmm. So that becomes the advocate for the prairie, that the prairie is so fiction. But, but there, you know, if you really look at even like the, the cliche of prairie fiction, <laughs> and, and Mitchell was so funny, he used to take a pinch of snuff and then he talked for an hour with snuff wildly flying. <laughs> and he would talk about the great taupe saucer of the prairie. That was the term he used. And you know, he would talk about the prairie as an entity. Yeah. And in, in, in those days, people used to say that the landscape was a character in the fiction, yeah. Yeah. right? But that's, that only works if you grew up in a small town <laughs> and you had certain experiences, right? They were going out of fashion even at the time when, because I studied with Mitchell in 1971 or two. 
um, and he was teaching a fiction writing course at the university here. So it was a, a huge, wonderful opportunity to spend hours with this storyteller. He was amazing. But even then, his, that was a, a period novel. Mm-hmm. Right, and that was at the time that he was writing Roses Are Difficult Here, I think it was, which was always called by the reviewers an old man's book. But it, you know, nobody teaches the old man's books, the old woman's books, as preliminary stuff because they're too nuanced, they're too hard. So you get, you know, a pick who's going to be on the syllabus for high school or university that represents certain groups. So, you know, does Austin Clark get to be the black writer? Mm-hmm. Or does Samuel Sullivan get to be the black writer? And those are going to be two different experiences, but they're, the professor's only going to teach one. Does Larissa Lai get to be the Asian writer? Mm-hmm. Or does, um, what's her name, who hung out with, with W.P. Kinsella? Evelyn Lau? Mm-hmm. Right? Or, you or know, Maxine so... Maxine Honkiston. Hmm? Maxine Honkiston. Yeah. But, you know, even then, she's tough to teach compared to, let's, you know, let's teach, um, I kind of, I'm blanking on the name, but the first one was a book of poems that, that she wrote before she had her celebrated book about how W.P. Kinsella was not a nice guy. Um, but, and I can't remember the title, but, you know, for a long time that sat on the syllabus. Or you taught Henry Kreisel because he was the archetypal sort of immigrant experience of a certain era or you taught Mordecai Rickler because he was going to be the Jewish guy oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's a really invidious and negative way of assembling but it's also the most common denominator way it's the easy way yeah you know so you pick the low-hanging fruit and that becomes the canon but I think I think we're at the point now where there's so much fruit that we're actually developing a nuanced view of what our of what our literary identity is in a way that just wasn't possible. It wasn't really there forty or forty five years yeah. ago, and yet there are works that were absolutely astounding that kind of didn't that were taught then because they were there mm-hmm. that didn't that didn't necessarily keep getting taught. There's a book called The Kissing Man by George Eliot, not the George Eliot who was Marianne what's her name, but a Canadian ad writer named George Eliot, who as far as I know only wrote one book. It was two L's, two T's. It's an astonishing magic realist set of linked short stories that turns into a novel. And is he Canadian? Yeah. He was Canadian. Yeah, he was Canadian, lived in Toronto, but my sister was nine years older than me and she was taking Canadian University when I was in what, junior high school, Mm -hmm. whatever. And so she's bringing, bringing home Leonard Cohen's books bring home Henry Kreisel, bring, and she brought home this book, The Kissing Man, and I fell in love with it. But in those days, they didn't have a lot of low-hanging fruit to turn into a canon. So they actually grappled with some of the tough books. And then there came this side of, you know, the Margaret Atwood period, where, you know, you, everybody read Atwood. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were reading Atwood when she was, when she was writing this scary, sour, sharp poetry that... Power politics had just come out when, when I was in Doug Barber's class. And, and you know, you go to see Margaret Atwood read, and she'd be saying, You fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye. And everybody would be going, Oh my God, oh my God. But she's, you know, she's not nice anymore. It's not about the prairies. It's <laughs> oh my God, we got, we got it, you know. And yeah. now, now she's the, the superstar, and that's a whole different dynamic. But, yeah. You know, it interests me that through 
like different generations reinvent themselves, but yeah. some of the themes actually do pull through. Um, you know, I think I think the, the only difference might be that in my day you had to deal with your history, because first of all it was it was short and it was perceptible, and and so you sat at the feet of people who had pushed the limits before you were you were there. And nowadays, I frankly don't think that young writers have to do that. There's so much richness in their immediate environment that they don't look back and they don't learn their history. And it's understandable, but it's kind of a pity because then their their themes get reinvented. Oh, look, we're discovering this, mm -hmm. that. We're discovering, you know, diverse voices. We're discovering, and it's a long list. But you know, and I'm sounding like one of those grouches. You know, the kids these days and they don't read and, and get those kids off my lawn anyway. But it's not what that's I mean. a recurring theme too. <laughs> It's not really what I mean. What I mean is yeah. that, that we're in such a rich environment. How do you filter it? Yeah. You can't because that's another thing. I feel like in this era, everybody can write a novel. And so that means everyone can write a novel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's great because now we're hearing voices that traditionally have been marginalized, traditionally have been on the fringe of the canon of Canlit, but this also means that there's so much. You're like, mm -hmm. what do I read? And it can be intimidating and... And, and one of the one of the benefits of the of the traditional publisher model that I came up in was that the, that a bunch of the filtering for the crap was done for you. I mean, Theodore Sturgeon was once asked why ninety five percent of science fiction was crap, and he said ninety five percent of everything is crap. But it used to be that some of that percentage, not all, would get filtered out. At the, at the level of, are you going to get this book traditionally published or not? Mm -hmm. Now the reader has to do that filtering, and I think that means that either either the reader over time develops a critical identity that they didn't have to have before, or else they change their notion of what writing is to include more crap, and that's unfortunate, but you know one hopes that they go the other direction <laughs> and, and start filtering better. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, talking about filters is... When you say filtering out crap, it's someone's still deciding what is and what isn't crap. Mm -hmm. And so lists like the CBC, yeah. the trusted authority in Canada, um, they, yes. that helps people filter out what they, you know, they, it's a trusted uh, source. So mm -hmm. then they say, well, if the CBC says this is worth reading, mm -hmm. I should take a look at it. Versus, oh, there's a, some signing at a local bookstore. I've never heard of that. Mm -hmm. They're not on any list. Yeah. So my time is limited. My resources are limited. That's, I'll probably not try that unknown person out. Why not go with the try tested? But I'll go with the CBC. And um, yeah. I love the CBC. I don't know that they speak for me. Yeah. But I love them because they're a Canadian institution. I think that's, that's a great <laughs> point. You have to trust your filter. Yes. And, yes. I think it's a you good have to be aware to of your one. That's, I think that's, that's, that's where, right. I think that's where you start. And then, you, and then I think it's better to... In a maturing way, you decide, oh, hey, maybe I'm going to make a commitment to what's local and be my own film. Yeah, and I think there's that level of critical thought that needs to go into it because the list making and kind of the prize culture is really interesting because sometimes, sometimes just for fun, I'll look at the books that end up on the CBC Reads list versus what's on the shortlist for the GG versus what's on the shortlist for the Giller, and those are three entirely different lists. But having and, been a publisher, I can tell you that a lot of publishers can't submit to the Giller. I don't mean don't, I mean can't. 
the Giller has some criteria for how to submit as a publisher and what happens if your book is shortlisted and what you have to pay in terms of helping co-promotion as a publisher. So we were a small publisher. We had books that I considered a few of them, just a few, but you know, we had some gems that could have maybe been Giller shortlists, but we couldn't afford to commit to paying 50% of the promotion for and the so title or sense. for having 5,000. If the book was, I think it was shortlisted, you had to commit to having X thousand in inventory. Right. And yeah. it was more than our print run. Yeah. And if the book won, you had to commit to having 5,000 available. So there's systemic mm-hmm. barriers to being yeah. part and, of. And yeah. you certainly can't do it if you're a self-published yes, author. That, yeah. Yeah, and that's the question where you, you're like, I'm not sure how to answer this. Well, I, I do think that, perhaps this is naive, but I do think that part of being Canadian, not just as an artist, but as a citizen, is that we pride ourselves in, in knowing that there are filters, that we have a certain, we do have a certain level of discourse and critical thinking, and we're aware that we're not the end-all, be-all, whether it be arbiters of taste or quality, we're very much aware that we're on an international stage, like you said, Allison. So we, we know that we're sort of small. <laughs> we're like the small press that could. You know? um, and, and we know that we're not, we're not the giant in the, in the space. Mm-hmm. And so we pride ourselves in, in having conversations like this. At their worst, it's navel gazing. At their best, <laughs> at their best, it's recognizing that we do each have a voice. That we are all important. I, I am disappointed that we don't have someone of an indigenous background right now. I would love to hear that yeah. perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that you are speaking to artists or writers with that background. Because that experience, the indigenous experience versus the settler experience, excuse mm-hmm. me, versus the immigrant experience, which is mine, my personal experience, is so different. They're very different, yeah. And the filters that we each have are so different. And so, Candace, you said something about you know low hanging fruit, but now there's more fruit, and sometimes I think there there actually are more trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there actually are more trees, and I think one of the challenges as Canadians. And a challenge for you <laughs> in this project is um, a lot of the times I think we end up talking as Canadians. We think the way we talk reveals that we think geographically. Yes, very regionally. S- very regionally. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're always trying to bind together this disparate regionality. Yeah, <laughs> we're such a vast in terms of lander. We're so vast, mm-hmm. and we we populate such a small part of it. And I think. That also is in our psyche mm-hmm. that we are very small. <laughs> we are very small in this in this immense landscape.